0: Uh, Again, it's going to be Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. It is good to be back with you. We're continuing our series in Matthew, looking at the life of Jesus. And the main theme uh, that we're going to remember as a result of going through Matthew is that the Gospel of Matthew is about the fact that Jesus brings us into a better kingdom. Better kingdom. So a kingdom is the reality that you live in or the story you tell yourself about what what does success mean? How do I find happiness and so forth? And what we're seeing this afternoon, the story with Jesus and Satan in the wilderness, is that being in the kingdom of God gives us a unique perspective on living in wilderness seasons. Wilderness seasons. So what's the wilderness? Well, Jesus is literally in one right now, the desert. The wilderness is a place that's inhospitable to life. And what Jesus teaches is that, well, there are literal wildernesses, metaphorically, ever since mankind has severed our relationship of love and trust with God, we live in the wilderness, as it were, and meaning every culture since the fall creates societies that make it really hard to to flourish, to prosper, to treat other people as human beings. Like if you ever think to yourself, man, sometimes life just feels really difficult. Like I'm just trying to get through this week. It's because we live in the wilderness, and there's a professor of English, his name is Alan Noble, and uh, recently he wrote a book called You Are Not Your Own, and in this book he's wrestling with why as a culture, especially in the West, we have all these technological advancements and this profound emphasis on equality, but yet, we still seem to be in a society that makes it really hard to treat other people as human beings. And it makes it, it just seems like it's hard for us to, to thrive. And here's what he says. I think this is the first paragraph in the book. He writes, A defining feature of life in the modern West is our awareness of society's inhumanity and our inability to imagine a way out of it. So by inhumanity, he means we treat people as less than humans. Then he continues, This inhumanity includes abortions, mass shootings, and widespread cover-ups of sexual abuse to meaningless jobs, broken communities, and TV shows that are only good for numbing our anxiety for 30 minutes. Kelsey and I experienced this about a decade ago. Our life grew so dim that we succumbed to Downton Abbey. Watching that after church on Sundays, and God and community brought us out of it, Okay. So then he continues, we weren't made to live like this, and we know it. So the mode that best describes our day-to-day is survival, right? I'm I'm just making it through. You ever feel that way? And while there are moments of joy, nobody seems to be actually flourishing except on social media, which only makes us feel worse. So if you find that it's hard to, you know, maybe you have, moments of it, but if you find that it's hard to maintain, like it's hard to constantly be healthy, right, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, it's because we live in the wilderness. We live in a world that's inhospitable to life, and so what we see here in this passage is uh, God gives us three really critical things that we need for life in the wilderness, and the sermon May feel heavy. I mean, just you can already tell it's probably going to be heavy. If you missed last week, encourage you to listen to it. It's much more feel-getting-great. This is how the Bible often works. If you were here last week, remember what we talked about last week: came with Jesus at the baptism. But what we're going to see today is uh, three things: we'll see one, the wilderness will happen, number two, there's an enemy in the wilderness, and then number three, but there is a way through. Okay, so, the wilderness will happen. It's going to happen to you. There's an enemy in the wilderness, and number three but but there's a way through okay so first number one, the wilderness will happen. so imagine for a moment if you could bring yourself to a place where you are so convinced of God's care for you and you are so filled with the spirit of God that your heart and God's heart are in absolute alignment. Like, you just love obeying God, right, from morning to evening. You do everything right. How would you expect your life to feel? And for years, my answer truly to this question was, I think my life would feel pretty peaceful. And some of you may come from theological traditions that teach this, right? If you obey God, if you just, if you have more faith, then life is going to go great. You're going to feel fine, right? But this passage blows that theory out of the water because here we have Jesus. We've never seen a person who has been more sure of God's love, who's been filled to the brim more with God's spirit. His heart is, he is God, and his heart is aligned with God. He just had the consummate mountaintop experience. Okay, He's baptized as he gets out of the water. Heaven rips open. God declares, you're my son in whom the the one who has all of my love, and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. I mean, the amount of money I would pay for a dove to descend on me when I get out of the bath, right, so this is an incredible experience he has, and then, bam, he is lonely, tired, hungry, in the wilderness, being assaulted by Satan himself. And this is profoundly instructive, because what it means is that you can be a believer, you can obey the Lord and still go through seasons of incredible confusion, doubt, pain. And if you're if you're in a season or if you've been in one or you're about to, and all three of us are in one of those three camps, could a season of feeling distant from God or a season of confusion or doubt could it be a result of rebellion? Or a result of not pursuing God's presence regularly. Yes. If we don't pursue God's presence, he's going to feel absent. But see here in verse 1, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's interesting. It's like both God and Satan want Jesus in the wilderness. And so if you're in a wilderness season, it could be because it could be something like God's doing with you what my Father did with me when I was a 17-year-old, and he dropped me off at university, okay, he helped me unpack my things in my dorm, and then he drove away with tears in his eyes as he waved goodbye because what he was saying was, child, I, I can't do this next part for you, that you have to do it on your own, and in fact, you're going to mature by doing it on your own. And that's what God's doing here with Jesus. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So God is allowing Jesus to experience this in order to grow into the kind of person that he is when he fulfills his ministry. Okay, so the wilderness, well, if it happened for Jesus, it's going to happen to you. And so a couple applications here as we think about this reality. Uh, First, this is incredibly relevant to us in our time and place. So a few weeks ago, we did our overview of Matthew. We looked at a few of the dominant kingdoms or storylines that we're prone to inhabit as modern Westerners, and we saw that one of those dominant narratives is the therapeutic kingdom. And you can, drop, you can bring up the, the graph real quick. And in the therapeutic kingdom, you're if not one of the, like your meaning in life is to feel peace, Comfort and good feelings. And we can't overstate how much this storyline impacts us. And just consider how much this storyline, like the thing I need most is to just stop feeling anxious. I need to just feel peace. That kind of storyline and mindset has no place for what's happening here. right? That storyline has no place for a God who would allow yourself to sit in a place of doubt or sorrow. And at a at a dinner last week, the show Cobra Kai got brought up. It's an outrageous show, if any of you guys have seen it. And it got me thinking, you know, so imagine if you you wanted to become really good at karate. So you go to apprentice under a sensei to become the best karate fighter you can be. You'd expect that if they're a good instructor who cares about you, you'd expect them to put you through painful regimens Right, of training and getting up early and so forth, and things that don't feel good in order to make you into a better fighter. But yet it's as if when we, just, when we sign up to apprentice with Jesus, all of a sudden we become shocked when he allows us to go through pain right? or, or seasons of confusion and doubt. And so this is why it's so key that one of, especially in our climate, one of the best things you can do is develop a faith that is not based on feelings or about your feelings, even though God does care about your feelings, a faith that is not based on your feelings, but instead on the greater reality of who God is and how he works. So that's the first application here. Second application is we think, think about the fact that the wilderness will happen is what this story shows us is that a key mark of a Christian is constancy. Constancy. Right? You're not up and down based on what's happening to you or based on your circumstances. Because what Jesus is exemplifying here is he knows, and we should be growing in this knowledge, that God, it's not just that he often does his best work in spite of hard times, he often does his best work in confusion, in doubt. right? Even your sin, if owned and brought to the Lord, is a profound means of God meeting you in intimacy and healing. And so you see Jesus here He's constant, right? Amid, amid his loneliness, his confusion, being assaulted by Satan, it's not that he suppresses his feelings. Okay? He's the most emotionally healthy person who's ever lived. But he's constant. He doesn't start, you know, throwing up his hands at God. He doesn't start assuming, well, I guess God hates me. Or he doesn't go on a media binge and check out from people. He stays true to his mission, And so for you, as you think about this reality that God often actually will do his best work if you let him in wilderness seasons, just one of the best gifts you can give people in your life, at your family, your spouse if you're married, your friends, is to be a person of constancy, right? It's not someone who checks out when things get hard, not someone who's up and down. So just ask yourself, are you, and I'm I'm growing in this, Are you someone who at least is growing in constancy, right, because of this fact that how God uses wilderness periods, okay? So, number one, God, or number one, wilderness, the wilderness will happen, so develop a faith that's not based on feelings, grow in constancy. Number two, there is an enemy in the wilderness. So there's two main characters in this scene. There's Jesus and the devil, And for some of you here, you may have difficulty making intellectual room for this category, that there is a intelligent supernatural being called the devil. And we're not going to make an apologetic for it now. Uh, But I would just, one, I I get that if that's hard for you to make room for that category. But for now, I would just encourage you to try to be open-minded to that, you know, maybe do we need a category robust enough to make sense for the profound evils in the world? And the powerful forces that, um, you know, seduce us away from the God of love. Also, Jesus, the most sober-minded person to live, he assumed the existence of Satan. So I'm going to as well. But for those of you who are believers, you know, maybe you're like, I, I don't have any problem believing in Satan. I believe in Satan. But if you're like me, you may be thinking, but, like, what do I do with that? <laughs> what do I do with that knowledge? That I, like, what do I look for? And this story here gives us just a really helpful, clear window into how Satan primarily works, especially when we're lonely, tired, angry, hungry, right? Like Jesus is here. Maybe not angry, but the other three. Okay, Satan will come after us in the wilderness. And Satan has one strategy and two weapons he uses with us and that he uses with Jesus here. So first he has one strategy, and to understand what's going on here, consider how Jesus, throughout his entire ministry, always uses his powers. It's never for self-gain. It's never, I'm hungry, poof, here's a Pop-Tart. It's never, I'm tired, so I'm going to fly over here. It's not destroying those who are crucifying him. It's always what? Healing, feeding, protection. In other words, other-centered love. And what's Satan trying to get Jesus to do here? Make magic bread out of stones. Jump off a high roof and have your angels catch you. Okay, self-protection. And then number three, self-enhancement. Okay, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world with the the snap of the fingers. So he's trying to get Jesus to use his godness for self-gain. And so what we see here is a collision of two kingdoms. The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Or put in terms that maybe are, are easier to remember and make more practical. The kingdom of self-gain or the kingdom of self. And the kingdom of other-centered love. And this is always how, the, how these two kingdoms operate. Right? God's king, all of God's commands are always about moving you in love toward God and neighbor. And so what Satan's strategy is, his main strategy isn't floating daggers coming at you or scary faces. His main strategy is if he can get you to just subtly drift into a disposition of prioritizing self, okay, your needs, your perspective, your priorities, at the expense of moving toward neighbor and other-centered love and worship of God, then he wins, So that's his strategy, just to get you to to be pulled into the kingdom of self. And it should give us, should feel pretty weighty, especially that we're in a cultural moment that urges worship of the self. (laughs) Okay, and so in light of that, what are the two main weapons he uses to draw us further into the kingdom of self? And his two main weapons are temptation and accusation. Here I... Heard Tim Keller give a talk on this a while back. It was just helpful to remember. Temptation and accusation are the main things that Satan uses. And so number one, temptation. And he, he tempts you to do just that, what we were talking about. He tempts you to feel and think and make decisions that are oriented toward the self. And so think about some of the most common temptations, either that you think of or you, you hear talked about. Okay, holding on to bitterness, Lowering someone else in the eyes of others through gossip. Uh, Objectifying other people through pornography. Getting angry or snippy towards somebody when they don't do what you want them to do. Households. Okay, note that all of these temptations are the opposite of moving towards treating someone as a human and as an image bearer and moving toward them in love and compassion. And so, guys, just like in light of this, I mean, one of the, John brought this up this week when we were preparing for this, like a common critique that you often hear against Christians or the Bible is something to the effect of, like, I don't get it. Why is God always talking about temptation and putting down rules and all these things? Like, it just seems like God doesn't want you to have any fun. And, That's an interesting take, because think about the most toxic or damaging work environments you've been in, the most angry or scary homes or a home that you've been in, like one of the most destructive relationships you've ever been in. Every single time this happens, because you or somebody else right, has bought into the kingdom of self, or the center of gravity is about them, their self-enhancement or their self-protection, and is refusing to change. Okay, so, th- so this is why God talks about temptation. Okay, because he has something so much better for you and for others to move outward in other-oriented love. And an application here as we think about temptation toward the self specifically for our church is a couple weeks ago, uh, we we made an announcement that we're moving to a morning service later in April. And a temptation for us is to self-protect in this way. Like when we move to a morning service, we hope that new people come to our church, right? People who are different than us, especially hopefully people who are in a different demographic than us. And a gut instinct of all of us, myself included, is going to just want to preserve the familiar. Like, I don't want to move toward that welcome because they, they're a little different than the type of person that I'm used to seeing in this church. I just want to encourage you guys. Like, when that temptation comes, or even for right now, you're thinking, like, I understand there's a lot of fears to moving, and they're not all sinful. But we have to acknowledge when that temptation comes, especially once we're operating as a morning service. To just want to keep the familiar? This is more than just personal preferences going on, but this is actually a war between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And a number of you have mentioned, like, one of the things that you appreciate most about this church is that we have a culture of care here. Like, are there not other people in this DMV area who need that? Okay, and so it's a a chance for us to invite other people. We don't do it perfectly, but it's a chance for us to invite other people into that that's his first weapon, temptation into orbiting around ourselves. Second weapon he has is accusation. Notice what Satan says in verse 3 and 6. The tempter came to him, verse 3, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And then the second temptation, verse 6, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written are you the son of God? What is the thing that God told Jesus at his baptism right before th- this wilderness period? Right, when Jesus came out of the water, God said, this is my son who has all of my love. And the point here is that when you are suffering, when you're confused, when you're in doubt, when you feel alone, one of the key things Satan will try to do it's to get you to doubt in the wilderness what God told you in the river. Okay, that what is, what is the truest thing about you, okay, that the truest thing about you is not that you are a victim or a fraud or aren't worthy of love or that you're successful or smart. And some of, the things, some of those things may be true, but they're just merely true. The thing that is most true about you is that God is absolutely pleased with you before you've done anything. And regardless of how your life continues to look. And so, this is just so slimy. It's like Satan leads you into temptation by convincing you, like, it's okay if you do this. It's fine. And then as soon as you do it, bam, accusation. You're not worthy of love. You're more worthy of self-contempt than anything else. And so if he can get you to believe maybe that the main storyline of your life is a failure or maybe one of vanity, right, or maybe that living in self-contempt is better than this identity and better than beauty, then he's won. And like as we wrap up this section on how Satan works, I mentioned I took a Counseling class the other week as an intensive, and uh, this counselor they've been doing counseling for 45 years. And they've, like, the stories they told were stomach churning in terms of the pain that people have experienced. And he said something like, one of the, you know, you often walk away remembering just a few things, and this is one of the few things I remember. He said, You know, and he does, he counsels both Christians and non Christians, but he said, Like, in all my years of counseling, sometimes I'll ask the question, just, you know, like, who do you hate the most in the world? He gets all kinds of answers, myself, this person, this institution. He said, not once has anyone said the enemy, but yet if they had any idea who was behind the pain that they've experienced, their answers would change. Okay, and so there is a supernatural, intelligent enemy who hates the gospel, hates Jesus, and he'll do everything he can. And he can't do much, but temptation and accusation are pretty powerful. All right, so what do we do? Well, this is a sermon, and this is church. So there's a point three, okay, and this is the gospel. There, there is a way through. Okay, there's a way through. So what do we see Jesus do? Notice that in response to every temptation, Jesus responds with Scripture. It's how he responds every time. And here's what I don't think the lesson is. I don't think the lesson is memorize verses of Scripture so that when you're feeling down or when you're feeling accused or feeling temptation, you can just, like, hold the Bible up or just quote verses like you'd hold up a cross to ward off a vampire. Memorizing Scripture is profoundly important. Okay, the verses I've memorized have helped me tremendously, and in situations like this. Okay, so I think we should memorize and use Scripture. However, I don't think that's the main takeaway we're supposed to get, and here's why. Because here, Jesus, he is at the end of himself. Okay, he's been fasting for 40 days. The most powerful being in the kingdom of darkness is in a one-on-one battle with him. And so, like, Jesus is at the point where, you know, when you're in an immense suffering like this, you can no longer pretend to be somebody, just the real you comes out. And the fact that scripture ble- just bleeds out of Jesus as it does throughout his entire ministry, what's going on here is Jesus is so saturated with scripture That it's what comes out when he has nothing else, right, that he can even think of or do. And because he's been so formed by learning the scriptures and rejoicing in the scriptures, he is so sure of who he is, he's able to remain in other-centered love, even though when every temptation is pulling him in the other direction, right? He's not going to believe lies, even from the most powerful liar, And so I think that 's one of the key takeaways here the, the, One of the main things that we have to get through the wilderness is the power of the Word being shaped by it and it 's a little bit like this. Some of you know Dr. John, who comes to preach here every four to six weeks or so, and he 's one of my primary mentors in ministry, and he is limited and he is a flawed human being for sure, but he 's also a great pastor and like what I've noticed is I've spent so much time with him, both all the classes I took under him and then since going out to eat with him and just spending a lot of time with him more on a on a friendship basis that often I'll find myself in a situation might be personal, it might be pastoral. And even if I h- haven't heard him talk about that specific situation, I must just instinctively think, like, what would what would Paul do in this situation? And some of you are like, Oh my gosh, you let Paul <laughs> <laughs> No, but for real. And it it, it has helped. And so that's the idea that's going on here. You, you need, we need to be so shaped by the word, right? There's just, it, ch- it changes our instincts and in how we tick and think and feel. And so for you guys, I mean, just if the statistics are right, it's probably true that most of you have, you, like, you know the word's important, okay? But in the day-to-day, Right, You get to sleep late and you wake up and it's like you have barely enough time just to get yourself together to be somewhat presentable for your first Zoom call or hopping into the workplace. And I just want to encourage you guys. like, God doesn't invite you to come into the scriptures on a daily basis just because he has some dry thing he wants you to do. He has something so much better for you because it's when you're in the scriptures, i.e. knowing God, that's when you become the kind of person, who actually knows who you are, the kind of person who's not going to be prone to believe so many of the lies in this world, either in your own head or that you're hearing elsewhere. You're going to be more relationally healthy. Okay, you'll be able to say yes and no to the right things and, you'll, and for the right reasons. Okay, you'll begin to look and feel and act more like Jesus. And so we'll be prioritizing this also as well in our discipleship groups Okay, like helping to make the emphasis even less about, okay, let's talk about a particular passage, but how are we walking with God on a day-to-day basis? Because it's the power of the Word that enables us to be people who are constant and be people who cling to objective reality than our feelings and, and aren't prone to believe lies of the devil or accusations. Okay, so that's, that's first, the power of the Word. But then second, the way through, to, through the wilderness is the person of the Word, and you ever wonder why it's Satan who goes after Jesus here? Satan is not omnipresent, he's limited by space. So he like if he's somewhere, that's the only place he is. Why does he like why is he here with Jesus? And it reminds me a little bit of how many of you guys have seen Rogue One? Can you raise your hands? Okay, I think this is enough. Those of you who haven't seen it, you can ask your betters to watch the, watch the movie. It's one of the best Star Wars media out there. Okay, well, hopefully you know the universe well enough. So in the end of the movie, the rebels are running away with the, with the battle plans to the Death Star. And Darth Vader, right, he's like outside of the Emperor, I, I think. He's the most powerful right? Being in the dark side of the forest. And what does Vader do? He doesn't send one of his minions out to go stop the ship. No, he says, I'm going to go. Prepare me a ship. And the reason is because he, he knows the stakes are so high, he can't trust it to anybody else. So he goes, and he just, you know, like, executes havoc on these people because he knew the mission was that important. And so this gives us a window into why it's Satan. He doesn't send a minion after Jesus, and why? It's because Jesus is not just here to show us how to get through the wilderness, okay? Or, or to, he didn't just come as a good teacher, but he came as a substitute. In a theme we see in Matthew is that Jesus is the new Israel, right? He obeys where God's people always fail. So in Chapter 2, we saw him leave Egypt like the Israelites. Then in chapter 3, we saw he was baptized, similar to Israel, went through the Red Sea, and now he's in the wilderness, just like Israel was in the wilderness. And so Satan knows, if I can just get Jesus to give in once, then his people have no hope. And I I think what was probably the most hard temptation for Jesus to resist was the third one. Because at this point, Right? Like, he's even more exhausted. And Satan says, See all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, and all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In other words, what he's inviting Jesus to do, he says, you can have have the crown without the cross. And I imagine for Jesus, like, he knew in this environment what crucifixion was. Okay? He knew the horror of the beatings, the shame of being stripped, And most of all, the pain he was going to have to endure, taking on the judgment of the world. And (laughs) it just would have been so easy for him to say, okay, like I'll just, I'll bow this one time just to get the kingdoms of the world without the cross. And so try to put yourself in this story. Because at this point, I mean, Jesus or uh, Satan has just been assaulting the identity of Jesus. Okay, are you the son of God? Are you the son of God? God doesn't care about you. Where is he? Your people don't love you. Where are they? Why don't you live for yourself? Okay, just take glory for yourself. And it's like Jesus here, as his eyes and vision are darkening, as he's at his wit's end. He digs down. He had to. He had to dig down deep, and he had to remember who am I. And he had to go to what he knew from the scriptures, and then he had to look at you. And in the greatest act of love in the world, he obeys. (laughs) He actually obeys, not a person in the world could have done this, except one. And so what being a Christian is about, it's not about never caving in to temptation or believing an accusation. It's about knowing the one who lived and loved you and gave his life for you. And in his resurrection, he actually gives you everything you need in this life and in the next. And so the wilderness, it will happen. There is an enemy who comes after you, but there is a way through, and it's the power of the word, and it's the person in the word, and his his name is Jesus. Let's pray.